1 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of God. At some point in your life, I imagine perhaps a parent or a spouse has had to remind you to behave yourself in church. They have to say, okay, now, you know, if you're able, when we sit, you sit. When we stand, you stand. When we're silent, you're silent. When we speak, you speak. When we sing, you sing. And listen attentively. Or maybe you've been pinched by someone to wake up or to pay attention. Uh, not that I've ever been pinched in church or anything like that, yeah. Well, this morning, or sorry, this evening, we make a foray into the pastoral letter of Timothy, of Paul to Timothy here. And Paul's main purpose is not simply to tell Timothy to behave in church, but really to behave as the church. Um, God has set apart his people, and the question is, what now? Later on in Paul's letter, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay in coming, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The church of Ephesus here has behavioral problems, something that I'm sure you guys know nothing about, right? Something that every church has to deal with. Of course we do. Although the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, there are blemishes wandering about, difficulties to endure, doctrines to divide, disruption and dissension, gossip and corrosive speech. And this letter is written for all that good stuff. <laughs> um, Timothy is to put God's house in good order, to organize what's disheveled and 
disorderly. My niece recently, we're going to my brother's house uh, for this next season, and uh, we were talking about how her room is all a mess. And I said, River, have you ever heard the statement that cleanliness is next to godliness? She said, no, I haven't heard that. I'm like, well, now you know. You got to clean up your room. Likewise, uh, spiritually, the house of God is to be a place of order according to God's law. Now, Paul wrote this letter about five years or so after a three-year-long ministry to the Jews and Gentiles of Ephesus. But before leaving, he said, you can read in Acts chapter 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Beware, he said, of this precarious situation with false teaching. And Paul was correct, which means that Timothy is not in to remain in Ephesus uh, for vacation, right? It's as in verse 1 we see, Paul, an apostle of Jesus by the command of God himself. Um, so Paul himself has a command to give to the church of Ephesus through Timothy, God, through his word, command, you know, it's showing that he means business here. So Paul says, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. This strange teaching is likely also why the letter of Paul here doesn't have that typical thanksgiving for the people or the church. Uh, Neither are the recipients of the letter the church at large, but to the faithful one, to Timothy, who's told, basically, this is the sum of our text, even as gospel enemies endure, fulfill the love um, which upholds God's law. Even as gospel enemies endure, fulfill the love which upholds God's law. We're going to see that in a few different parts, three parts. First, we see the lawless use of the law. I'm going to give you also the subpoints in case there are note takers. The subpoints right ahead. Uh, we're going to go through the command's prohibition and the command's purpose under this lawless use of the law. So first, the command's prohibition. In verse 3, Paul urges Timothy to stay at Ephesus as he continues on to Macedonia so that Timothy might prohibit the teaching of this different doctrine. Now, the Christian church has and continues to be deeply invested in good doctrine. Um, Many in our day, in the world of academia, as you read more and more in those spheres, attack the belief uh, uh, that the early church of Paul actually even had a unified or an orthodox doctrine. They'll say, actually, there were all kinds of different ancient church beliefs and opinions as to right doctrine. So then they'll go a step further and say, there's no one correct doctrine, so there's no orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is actually a myth. Ortho meaning straight or right. Doxy meaning uh, belief or practice. Um, 
but not according to Paul right here in the New Testament, right? There is a different doctrine. There is a hetero, other, doxy teaching, which he warns against. So that must mean very clearly that there is a orthodoxy, a right doctrine for which he advocates. That's also what we hear in Jude, which I hear is being preached here, right? That there is a deposit of faith. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So there is a deposit of a system of doctrines delivered to uh, the people of God. It's, uh, this is uh, not an unpopular, uh, uh, this is not a popular opinion, excuse me, to hold in uh, the diversity culture that we're in that celebrates, in some sense, any kind of diversity, including that of beliefs. In fact, there's a great book I'd recommend to you if you want to read it called The Heresy of Orthodoxy. How contemporary culture's fascination with diversity has reshaped our understanding of early Christianity. Put that on the Christmas list. So, uh, you people who insist that there's one doctrine, that's what we're told, you are the cause of division and discord in the church. We have to be a big tent and always inclusive and always affirming and accepting. There's never been a Christianity. There have been Christianities. And to insist that there's just one is exclusionary and intolerant and bigoted. Uh, Knowing how to deal with that kind of accusation is important. And right here we see Paul saying, nope, there is a right doctrine. There is maintaining purity in the church so that we're not deluded by false ideas and false dogma or teachers. So false teaching like this uh, open letter, I'll give you an example from a PCUSA minister. He says, though I self-identify as a Christian, what a way to start out, right? And I'm ordained minister in the PCUSA. I believe that religion is a human construct. The symbols of faith are products of human cultural evolution Jesus may have been a historical figure, but most of what we know about him is in the form of legend. God is a symbol of myth-making and not credible as a supernatural being of force. The Bible is a human product as opposed to a special revelation from a divine being. Human consciousness is the result of natural selection, so there's no afterlife. In short, I regard the symbols of Christianity from a non-supernatural view, and yet... Even though I hold these beliefs, I'm still a proud Presbyterian minister, and I don't be, appreciate being told I'm not truly a Christian. It's almost entertaining to read because it's so sad uh, that anything like that can even exist. But they do in our culture. And it's not just the PCUSA. It's really easy to hold people at arm's length or whitewash or blackwash all the PCUSAs. But... Uh, there are doctrines that come into our own spheres, be it theistic evolution or any kind of things we can struggle with, right? False doctrines. And our preaching and teaching must be orthodox. The big idea here between Paul and Timothy, the main issue, is our teaching, often used interchangeably with preaching in the New Testament. How will the law of Moses especially be taught. Here's a battle over Christian education. By the way, most Christian denominations are differences stem 
very much so from how do we understand the law of Moses in light of the coming of Christ and the new covenant, right? What will we teach? Now, we don't know exactly the fullness of what these different unorthodox doctrines were that Paul was dealing with, with, along with Timothy, although some surmise that it could be the Gnostics, some others uh, like some kind of Jewish influence of um, uh, Jude- the Judaizers. But let's look at what we do know. Paul says, Timothy, charge these certain persons not to teach a different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God that's by faith. It's likely Paul knew who these certain persons were, you know, like a hint, hint, uh, let the reader understand, and didn't even have to mention their names specifically to Timothy to know who they were and for Timothy to take specific action. We know further that they entertained these myths and and endless genealogies. Um, Now, Myth is a word that is used very uh, deceptively sometimes in our spheres. When people start to talk about the Bible as a myth, sometimes they can mean, oh, this just defines the character and values of a people group using an ancient document or something. It's like, okay, in that sense, we could say the Bible's myth, but the way the New Testament more often uses it and popular culture means it is something that didn't actually happen, right? And so you'll see in lots of academic discussions, people bring up, oh, this is a myth, but what they they say it, oh, it might mean this, but really they mean the second one. Um, But that's not how the Bible defines itself. We do not devote ourselves to myths. Fiction is not our wheelhouse. The truth is, right? We don't believe in the myth of the resurrection, right? Right? like people love Jordan Peterson as an example. He's an interesting uh, online personality or what have you. But he never really says he believes in a literal resurrection, right? And if you don't believe in a literal resurrection, if it's a myth or a psychological reality that the Logos is embodied in you or something like that, it's not going to save you, right? Only a living Savior is going to save you. So in here, there's plenty of ammunition that's probably provided for the uh, people here to argue about endless genealogies. There's endless ammunition in the Old Testament tradition, in the Book of Jubilees, or the Biblical Antiquities of Philo, or all sorts of other um, allegorizing non-historical works. We could try to guess what speculations are that they had at issue. But Paul's point is that they promote speculation rather than the stewardship of God by faith. Um, our American culture is also, can also be rife with speculation. Like I, I don't know, these are probably a little dated as it examples, but uh, I remember the New York Times, I think it, it rose to level one, heaven is for real, you know? The guy who imagined or believed that he had died and like been to heaven and then came back basically um, speculation. Or a lot of people are in the evangelical church at large always trying to guess when Jesus will come back. 
Jane and I love to listen to family radio, and people are always like, oh, that's with that guy who got the wrong date for the end of the world. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although now they have RC on there, so that's good. But anyways, uh, there are all kinds of vain discussion that Paul talks about. It's as if someone took a, a company car, right? And they take it on a detour and go down... Uh, knowing that they should do the job, but they go down all the back alleys and do the donuts and crash the car, right? That's the kind of stewardship that these false teachers are doing, right? Not true stewardship. Um, it's that which rather than the stewardship of God by faith. And that brings us to this next point, the command's purpose. Proper stewardship is like taking a care of a house while someone is away. Now, my brother was a bit of a rebel in high school, so when my parents went away, uh, he would bring up all the friends over, you know, and the party raged, and things were broken, and cabinet locks were broken, and the driveway was torn up, and uh, I wake up in the morning because I locked myself in my room because it got so crazy, and there's someone sleeping in the bathtub, and, you know, I was like... Not good stewardship, right? Not taking care of your parents' household. Uh, now, rather than that, this is what, what does proper behavior look like? What is Christian stewardship supposed to look like in the church? Well, look at verse 5. This is a great verse to memorize. The aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If you want to ask yourself, am I hitting the bullseye, <laughs> right? Or is our church, uh, you know, our church at the shooting range or playing a game of darts, are we hitting the bullseye? The aim of the charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Don't we need that? Right? That's what we need. Even though Timothy was commanded to teach this very thing at Ephesus, Jesus himself also said this to Ephesus in Revelation 2. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. It's not enough to be merely orthodox, right? If doctrine doesn't fulfill the aim of love. Some will say that if you have good doctrine, you have love. But according to Jesus right here, that was the exact problem with the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. Good doctrine, no love. Where is your love? You know, people are confused these days about that L word. Uh, you see the slogan, love is love, up on the bulletins, used to promote the degradation of uh, sexual virtue and the very heart of God. Um, but Christian love, true love, reflects Jesus and his beliefs from the law, right, uh, of the Old Testament, who has certain, a certain definite character. Love which issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Um, what do those mean, real quick? Uh, well, first of all, pure heart means you're not divided in your intentions, you read Psalm uh, 22, and it talks about the double-hearted. The wicked has double-hearted, or 12. Anyways, um, 
that someone might uh, want or show like they're going toward a certain end. I want to be a pastor, but my real reason is, you know, I want money or fame or influence or whatever. That's a double-hearted person. And love that, that uh, the, love doesn't belong with that, right? Now, uh, a sincere or a good conscience is uh, not like Jiminy Cricket, right? I, everybody thinks about Jiminy Cricket with conscience. Let your conscience be your guide or whatever. That was not the right voice. But anyways, uh, Jiminy Cricket uh, tells him, that, Pinocchio, that. But some people's conscience is not a good guide, right? Uh, just what they should do, good or bad. A good conscience is a conscience to know good or evil based on what God says about good and evil. So uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was really a test to will you accept what God's version of good and evil is, not to eat of the tree, or will you make uh, good and evil what's right and wrong in your own eyes, which is the temptation for all. So we have that. And then lastly, this sincere faith, sincere faith. Uh, It's easy to be dissembling or hypocritical in our goals or our um, belief. But here we have a a sincere faith. I truly want to believe and, and grow. These are the sorts of things that love may issue from and that will provide for a peaceful church and those who exercise proper stewardship over the church and inside the church. So next we'll see uh, the lawful use of the law, who the law is for and what the law is for. Um, The lawful use of orthodoxy in the Old Testament self uh, is first to be understood according to who it's for. Now, this is what Paul says. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And we have three words, or three pairs which overlap here. Lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, holy and unholy and profane. The law is for these people to restrain their sin and condemn it on the base of God's moral high ground. He's, he's the highest morality, right? It's not uh, whatever the democratic uh, governance says in a country or something like that or, or whatever. God is the highest morality. Uh, maybe you've heard of the threefold use of the law. I'm sure that's been bantered around. Maybe you've heard it in discussions or from the pulpit. Um, the threefold use of the law is helpful. I rem- remember it by using an acronym, uh, CRT, not critical race theory. Uh, but uh, I remember like karate or something, um, which is for first the first use of the Old Testament law is to point us to Christ. That's to see. Um, to show us our own uh, need of Him so that we know Him, uh, so that we will know Him and trust in Him for salvation. The second use of the law is that R, uh, to restrain wickedness. And that's really what we're dealing with in our text, right? 
Paul is focusing in on the second use of the law. Um, this is to restrain the wickedness of the nations and unbelievers. And then the last one is for believers. The T is to train us in righteousness. How do I grow as a Christian, right? Um, we Presbyterians are not like uh, some others who may uh, kind of jettison the Old Testament or try to unhitch us from the Old Testament. We're Old Testament, New Testament people, full Bible Presbyterians. Uh, we also get a litany of a specific sort of, of sorts of sinners, those who strike fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and, and so on. Um, they, the law is specifically for these people. And you know that it's important that the, the Bible has these things because especially on the pain point ones, people are trying to constantly dodge the law of God and say, oh, well, you know, this arsenicoitai, homosexual word, maybe there's a way that Paul was only speaking to this general context. And it's like, no, because Paul is quoting from Leviticus 18, right? Where the compound word men who sleep or bed down with men, right, is being quoted from. But people will try to wiggle out of uh, the use of the law, but the exact purpose of it is to show them to restrain sin. It's not just for homosexuality, but for all sorts of um, sins. People inclined to hatred who revel in pornography, chase sexual lusts, who ensnare others for their own purposes, who lie to so-called loved ones and cheat on exams and taxes, who say one thing or do another. The law is to restrain wickedness. You know, you can go through the larger catechism, Westminster Large Catechism, and look at the Ten Commandments and see the prohibitions and the positive uses of the law and, and grow in that, going through the Ten Commandments. Um, but your culture will constantly try to degrade the sense of law that you uphold as church. In the book Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, he talks about these as death works where there will be public displays of repudiation for the law of God or the things of God, uh, like the art Piss Christ, where they submerge the crucifix of Christ into a jar of piss in order to degrade the things of God. Well, so they also do with the, uh, the monuments and the symbols of faith everywhere in your culture, right? It's not going to be any different with the actual laws, but you are to stand for the laws. So we know who the law is for, but this is what the law is laid for. It says that it's laid down for these ungodly ones. And what is that? If, if I could put in one word what that laid down means, it's that there's conviction. The law is for conviction. Um, there are three types of conviction that you can think about. Um, conviction can mean evil behavior is restrained, keeping someone from doing the evil they want to do. Conviction can come before repentance, right? Uh, which is a good kind of conviction. Or conviction can mean condemnation, as in he was convicted of a crime. Conviction is a fork in the road and places before all of us the question, and the, the law does this, what will you do with the righteousness of God? 
What will you do with God's law? Conviction under restraint will last for a little, little while, but ultimately it's going to be a fork in the road. Will you repent? Will you bend your knee to the law of the Lord? Or will you be condemned? Right? Um, and it's scary because some of us put off conviction unto repentance. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot said a very fiery uh, something when she, she says, um, often um, we, what we call struggle is just delayed obedience, right? Whew, it hurts, right? Um, sometimes we know what we need to be convicted of and we just aren't doing it, right? We need a conviction to repentance and we should want it from the heart. The law is ultimately for a repentance unto life, not or condemnation to death, um, which is why Paul ends with these words in our text, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. The law is to be laid down or bring conviction in accordance with the gospel. Law and gospel together. Some Law, gospel, Lutheran preachers like lose their minds with this, yeah. The gospel, though, cannot be severed properly from the law. The law cannot operate and should not operate without the gospel. The gospel without the law is empty. The law without the gospel is aimless. Right? The gospel is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And that's why we hear these words, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's what Paul says in this passage. Um, some people basically jettison the law in our uh, culture. It's like, oh, that was the Old Testament, yeah. And then it's like the end of the conversation. That's not what Paul says. The law is good if you use it lawfully, if you use it according to the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to bring about faithful obedience. It's to show the righteousness of God to the world. Outward and visibly, God does have the moral high ground, which is proven when you act as the salt of the earth, when your faith is on display for the world to see as a city on a hill and the church of God. You live the law, which is truly a demonstration of the gospel in your lives. And that brings me to this last point. Grace, mercy, and peace from God. God does not leave you alone to live according to the law, as if you could do that, right, without Christ. But the law is understood in its fullness by the gospel. And the greeting from Paul here is a miniature uh, package of the gospel. Uh, kind of like an atom bomb gospel or a second atom bomb gospel. Um, look at verse 1. The reason Paul's an apostle... Why he can have the moral high ground is showed by these words, Paul, an apostle, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. By the command of God, God is behind Paul's work and therefore behind Timothy's as well. I believe the Lord is also at work here at second because God is your Savior. God can save. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world by only holding out the law by itself. Right? But to save the world. He wants conviction unto 
repentance, to save those who strike mothers and fathers, murderers, the sexually immoral, homosexuals, enslavers, liars, and perjurers, to cleanse them from the heart by the precious blood of Jesus. The Savior that you believe in, you who are faithful. Do you tell the world about Him? Right? Is He just a faceless Savior to you? Or is your life just about following some rules? If it is, you're missing out on the most important thing here. What, uh, what a world, word we see here about hope, right? That Jesus is our hope. It means we're not left alone to get ourselves out of the sickness we're in and our inability to follow the law on our own or apart from faith. But through the true and good, the healthy teaching and belief of the gospel, we have the hope of Christ. This gospel, which fulfills the law by love, by the righteousness of Christ, is given by the God of grace and mercy and peace. Timothy is going to need those things as he ministers to the church at Ephesus. You will need those things. In the short time I've been among you, in the last few days, um, you know, I've learned the church has been through a number of ordeals in the last few years, right? And what has been your response to those things? Have you been an agent of order? Have you been someone who has issued uh, love from the heart, right? Do you have the aim of the charge, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith? Have you been a conduit of grace, mercy, and peace? Right. These greeting, uh, this greeting in these words no doubt gave Timothy great peace. Uh, and Timothy's called a true son of Paul in that sense because he is acting out the true beliefs of Paul in this same Savior who suffered and died so that we might also become sons and daughters of the King. Now may God give you the grace and mercy and peace to be his children. And may that command from Timothy also meet your hearts. You know, it's not that you're ordained to the same service as Timothy, but you share in the same orthodoxy, the same gospel, the same good law, and the same Jesus who is at work in his people Uh, the church, no matter what comes against you or from among you. Even as gospel enemies endure, fulfill the love which upholds God's law. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the revelation of you, first in the world all around us, the beauty that we see, Second, in uh, the law of the scriptures, that we can read and understand what you would require of us, but most fully and fundamentally in the person and work of Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and our only way toward grace, mercy, and hope. God, we pray that we would live in him tonight and in our Christian lives and forevermore. We pray this in his name. Amen.